of a professor who was asked by his class, are you going to give us a surprise quiz next week? And he said, I'll tell you what. Before I give you a surprise quiz next week, I'll, um, I'll climb through the transom above the doorway. So, you know, just consider that. And the next week, while they were sitting in class, they heard bump, bump, scrape, and the transom above the door opened, and the professor climbed through and gave them a test. So from now on, they're going to be written tests, and we're going to check you to see if you're paying attention on Sunday mornings. Father God, thank you for this passage we're going to study today. We know, Father God, that you're a God who speaks to us at life where we live it. And I thank you for the, the, for the clarity with which this passage addresses us today. And I thank you in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a child, someone in my family gave me a gift that actually my father would never let me play with by myself. And when I first opened the box, it looked something like a box of Legos. Now, it may have been from Legos, but it was way, way better quality than Legos. So I don't know where they got this gift, but it was this box full of these random pieces. And the reason my dad wouldn't let me keep it is I was too small. He knew the pieces would disappear within the first day. And so what happened was that he would let us play with it and then put it away and then bring it out every now and then so that we could play with it again. But what he did was he then sat my sister and me down at the table. We were just small kids and put this box and then spread all the stuff out before us. And then he slowly took each of those little bricks. Some of them you could tell were bricks. Some of them you could tell were windows. Some of them looked like doors. Some of them actually looked like nice slate roofs. And he slowly constructed, and it wasn't anywhere near as pretty as this, but this gives you the idea, that out of those random pieces, he built this beautiful little cottage, which actually had a little white picket fence around it. It was, for us as small children, it was absolutely amazing to see from that random stuff this beautiful little building come into existence. Life comes at us sometimes like a box of Legos. There's stuff in that box that comes at us that's good and attractive and pretty. Then there's some broken pieces in there. There's some pieces that are ugly. There's some pieces that we can look at and understand what the purpose of them is. And then there are other pieces we look at and we can't figure out why in the world we would have to go through those experiences. And James, as he starts to write a letter to the early churches, writes to people who are being bombarded by all kinds of trouble, all kinds of trials. As human beings, they're going through the normal difficulties that all of us have with health and finances. But they were also going through a period where there was a famine all around them. And so they were dealing with hunger constantly. They were also, however, Jewish people. And as a result, they were people who were being persecuted by the culture around them. But more than that, they were Jewish Christians. So they were not only being uh, persecuted by the culture, they were being persecuted by the Jews. And so writing to Jewish Christians, he's writing to people whose life looks like this. There's all kinds of chaos. There's all kinds of difficulties, all kinds of trials in their lives. And James writing to them, he's the brother of Jesus, remember? The blood brother of Jesus who became a follower of Jesus only after the resurrection, as far as we can figure it out. But he became the leader of the first church in the world. Can you imagine? He was not just the senior pastor. He was senior pastor of the first ever church in the entire world. And he was one of the leading pillars of the church. And he sat down and he wrote a letter to his brothers and sisters, very warm, very pastoral letter. 
But as he writes to them, you would think, knowing all the difficulty they're going through, he would talk to them about how you, I know you're victims, and I know how hard life is, and therefore I'm writing to comfort. He doesn't. He jumps straight into the middle of it, and he says, I want you to understand that what you're going through, God will actually use for your ultimate benefit, not, during in this, not only during this life, but in the world to come. And so understand that if you trust in God, he will turn every single thing that is an enemy of yours into an ally, and he will use it to build up your life. We covered this last week in what I call the joy equation. So I'll, I'm going to have you fill in the blanks for me. No, I'll do it for you, just otherwise we'll be here all day. <laughs> he teaches us this, that when you go through trials in life and you trust God, now faith doesn't mean faith. Faith is not sort of a floating thing. You've got to have faith. Okay. Faith is always trust in an object, and their trust is in God. The only faith that works in this world is trust in God. So, you go through trials, and in the midst of your trials, you trust God that He hasn't abandoned you. You trust God that He knows what's happening, and that He can use us for your benefit. What that yields is perseverance, the ability to keep on going, and the ability to get stronger and stronger over time. And you become mature in Christ. You become more and more like Jesus. And then if you persevered all the way through this life, you're promised the crown of life. The crown of life is some kind of an eternal reward. It's more than eternal life. He's not just promising you'll earn eternal life because you don't. Eternal life is a gift God gives to us. So the crown of life is an additional reward that is given to those who have persevered through this life. We're not, heaven is not going to be a communist society. Heaven is not going to be a place where we're all equals. Not at all. We're all going to be there if we believed in Jesus Christ. But there's going to be ranking in heaven. And the ranking is going to be based upon how faithful we have been during this life. The more faithful we've been, the more we have served God, the more we're going to be ranked higher than others. And the more rewarded we're going to be than others. And most of us cringe and go, oh, don't talk about that. I just want to go to heaven. I just want to be... No. Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures on in heaven, okay? Stash them away. Don't be... Well, actually, do be greedy about stashing away reward in heaven. And James says, hey, you persevere through the trials by trusting in God. You're going to grow stronger. You're going to grow more and more like Jesus. And you're going to earn a crown of life. And that's why he starts by saying, consider it ultimate joy, my brothers, when you go through trials of any kind. Understand that when you back away and see the big picture, instead of us seeing it absolute misery, we see ultimate joy. At the end of the process, there's ultimate joy. Now, an interesting thing is that right in the middle, he describes something that we used to call character building, that God builds perseverance and maturity into us. And it used to be that character building was something that was something we, we, we honored. Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. All of those, those, those organizations in the church, Sunday school, in our culture, going to school, the whole idea is our job is not just to educate you, but to build your character. Do you remember that? That's a long time in the past. But that used to be the goal of education, was to build the character of children, not just their knowledge. When I went to school, I had to wear a uniform every single day, and I had to wear a cap. And when I went to school, I was taught, you walk past a woman, you doff your cap to her. You don't just walk past. You, we were taught that when you're sitting in your seats and a man walks into the room, you stay seated. 
when you're sitting in your seats and a woman walks into the room, you stand up. And if you don't stand up, you're going to get a flick behind your ear that reminds you to show respect, okay? So what they were doing wasn't just teaching us information. They understood our job is to build your character. And God's goal for your life and mine is to build our character. He hasn't promised to make us happy. Never lies that your life is going to be happy if you believe in me. He never promises that you're going to make you wealthy if you believe in me. He doesn't lie. Televangelists lie and tell you this is what you'll get if you believe in Jesus. God never does. In fact, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But I've overcome this world. Okay? And so what God is in the business of doing is building our character. He wants to make you stronger. He wants to make you more holy. He wants to make you and me more and more like Jesus. And so his goal is to build our character. And that's why he uses these trials in our life to build character into us. And so James understands that when you and I run into a trial, run into a difficulty in life, at a, that point in life, if we know what God is wanting to do, at that point in time, we need guidance. We need wisdom. We need to know how to respond to this particular challenge that has come into our life. And so in James chapter 1 and verse 5, he promises this. He tells us this, that I must ask God for the wisdom I need to properly respond to trials. God knew that, that we would run into difficulties in life and we're going, how do I react to this? And so James teaches us this. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, <laughs> welcome to the club. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. In the previous verse, he said, God's goal for us is that we will become mature, not lacking anything. Then he uses the same word. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Now notice, generously. Most of us think that when we go to, oh, by the way, this is going to apply to praying for wisdom in the midst of trials, but this speaks about prayer whenever we pray. And when we pray and we go to God, most of us go with the idea that, e if I ask, would you give me a little bit? And here he says, God gives generously, okay? He gives way more. We found this beautiful little saying a, a while ago, Lord, I came to you carrying a little thimble, asking for just a drop of water. If only I'd known you better, I'd have come running with a bucket. Okay? He gives generously. So this applies to whenever we pray. Understand God is not holding all these blessings, and you have to force him and beg him. He gives generously to all without finding fault, which means even if I've come to him and asked for it before, he doesn't go, well, it, this may, you may not understand this, but it's true with Raymond. You asked for this yesterday, and you're back again. And again and again, without finding fault, God says, nope, whenever you need it, I'm going to give it. And sometimes I go to him and I'm asking for wisdom, and God goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. The problem you're going through is you caused it, Raymond. So you go and lie in your bed, okay? You made the bed, you go lie in it. I'm not going to answer your prayer right now, because you did it. Generously, without finding fault, God says, God says okay, you're asking me for wisdom right now. I'm going to give you the wisdom. And without finding fault, and it will be given to him or to her. So God's saying, you're going to go through tough times in life. And I'm going to use every one of those tough times 
to consecutively build strength and maturity and character inside of you. And every time you face a trial, I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm going to help you to know how to respond so that you benefit from it. Guys, we're going to go through trouble anyway. We're going to go through difficult times. We have a choice. Are, you going to, are we going to let them wreck us or are we going to let them build us? And God says, don't waste one of those experiences of your life. Come to me and trust me and let me help to build you. When I moved to San Diego, I had a great job. It was like, yeah, this is cool. We're going to go all over the country. And we did it first, and it was just amazing. And then I went on vacation. I came up from vacation, and there was a message for me. It said, we closed the company. You don't have a job. It's like, oh, do you know what that's like? I just bought a house. And it's like, oh, are you kidding? The company doesn't exist anymore. In fact, please turn in your phone and turn in your laptop as soon as possible. The company is gone. Tell you what, I don't know if you've ever experienced the fear of losing your job at a time like that. But in the core of my being, there was this cold, cold horror and fear. And thankfully, I knew the passage. And what's amazing is I could counter it and go, all right, God, I need help. I need wisdom. I need you to guide me during this time. And you know what? I can look back and say with total joy, God stepped in and he took me in a way better direction because the church I was attending offered me a part-time job and then a full-time job. And then they sent me to plant a church and then that church sent me here. And so consider it all joy, Raymond, when you lose your job because God had something else planned. It's not always that straight a line, but in this case it was. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. Well, what is wisdom? First of all, wisdom is more than knowledge. You can find people who've got PhDs who are the dumbest people on earth. Have you ever known that? People who've got all kinds of education, and they are so stupid when it comes to normal, everyday life. And so it's not just education. But of course, it has to start with education. You can't get wisdom without education. But the education is only a part of it, because you could be hyper-educated, but never be wise. Wisdom can be defined this way. It's a God-given capacity to live right. But to live right means to live righteously. God-given capacity to live righteously. When we study the Bible, we discover the source of wisdom is always God. God the Father is the source of wisdom. God the Son is called our wisdom. The Spirit is the one who brings wisdom to us. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, many of the descriptions of wisdom match the New Testament descriptions of the Spirit of God. So that the Spirit of God is actually the personification of wisdom. Wisdom comes only from God. There's a thing we call wisdom, and Paul speaks about it in 1 Corinthians, that the world calls wisdom. It's not. It's impre imprecise. It's incomplete. But there's a wisdom that comes to us, that comes to us directly from God. I'll come back to this in a moment. One of the best illustrations or definitions of wisdom comes from Dallas Willard. Wisdom means to live my life as Jesus would live it if he were me. Doesn't that help? That changes completely. So, James is saying, if you need wisdom in the midst of your trials, go to God, because he is the source, the only source of wisdom. And ask him for the wisdom to be able to encounter these difficulties. Think about it. How does the world respond when they get into tough times? Well, just think of the movies. 
person's going through a tough time. Big pressure on him. He comes home. He goes to the liquor cabinet, pours himself a scotch and whiskey. Oh, scotch and whiskey, scotch and rocks. I don't know. <laughs> he pours himself a stiff drink. And with that stiff drink inside of him, he's now ready to face the world. I saw a cartoon a few years ago. This man walking through his office. And he's walking big and strong and proud. And the secretaries are saying, look at him, what a man. His whole world has collapsed around him. He's lost his business. He's lost everything. And he walks like a man. And he walks into his office and he slams the door behind him. And then he falls out on his knees and goes, mommy. <laughs> you watch the movies. What do, what do people do when they face trouble? They get a stiff drink. Well, hello, that's going to last, what, how long? About 17 seconds. And then you're going to need another one. And then you're creating another problem all along. How do we respond to the difficulties of life? God says your first resource, your first recourse must be to go to God and say, God, I need you to guide me through this. I need wisdom to get through this. But, James says, when I go, since God gives without reservation, I must ask without reservation. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Raise your hand if you've never doubted God. Okay? Do you notice that doubt is a normal part of our life and of our walk with God? And that doubt easily creeps into it. And so you face you've lost your job and you pray about it and you doubt. There's this, ah, oh, you know, has, is there going to be an answer to this? Remember there was a centurion, a, a Roman, who came to Jesus and he said to Jesus, my son, actually it wasn't his son, it was my, my, my servant is ill, is dying. And I need, would, would you heal him? And Jesus said, take me to him. And the man said, actually I'm a centurion, I know what it is, others give orders, I follow orders, you don't have to come, just issue the order. And my son will be healed. And Jesus said, it's done. And then he turned to the people around him and said, I've not found that kind of faith in any of our people. It's the kind of faith God wants us to have. Where we come and we just simply say, you are God. And I trust you. And I'm bringing my need before you. And I know you are God. So therefore, I'm going to trust in you. But most of us go, I know, but it's so hard, Raymond. Do you remember the other man who came to Jesus? And he said, will you come and heal my child? And Jesus said, do you believe I can? And the man said this, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Wow, what grace. And Jesus healed. So for all of us, he knows that we're going to wobble on this whole issue. But when we come, he says, you must come and don't play verbal doodling with God. You know what verbal doodling is like? Verbal doodling is when you say, please, Lord, no, I don't know you can't, but I'm asking, I know you can't, I know you're not going to, but I'm going to pray anyway. That's verbal doodling. If you're going to pray, you, you need to pray and, and trust God and believe him. Why not? Because that man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. In other words, I come to God and I pray about a need I have in my life. And as I pray about it, I also doubt that God's going to do it. And I ask you, God, to do it, but I don't think you're going to actually do it. And God goes, which of you is talking to me right now? Okay? 
The one who trusts me or the one who doesn't trust me? Who am I supposed to listen to? Because right now, you're giving me confusing signals. Why do we doubt? Double-minded thinking comes from our thinking that Satan has planted in our head right from the Garden of Eden that God is not good enough. When he came to Adam and Eve, he said, God doesn't want you to be his equal. That's why he doesn't want you to eat of the fruit of that tree. God once knows that if you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will become like God. You will be able to choose what is right and what is wrong. That was the temptation he gave to them, and he said, and God is keeping something good from you. And so there's the thought in the back of our minds that God is not good enough, that actually God withholds all the best things for us. James is going to say in just a few verses from here that every good thing that comes down to us comes down to us from the Father of the heavenly lights who gives generously to all. And so when we are double-minded, it's because we think God is not good enough. Or we think God is not powerful enough. <laughs> he can create universes. No big deal. But he can't help me. He's not strong enough. Or God is not loving enough. Jesus once said, which of you, if you go to God and you ask him for bread, will give you a stone instead? Okay? If, you, if, your father came, if your child came to you and said, ask for bread, would you give him a stone? If you came and asked you for fish, would you give him a snake? If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to those who ask you, how much for does your father know to give good gifts to us? And so when we pray, we have to understand that God is love, absolute love for us. And that when we're double-minded in our prayers, we're thinking that God is not loving enough for us. Now, sometimes, and we, and we have to remember this, God will answer our prayers. But sometimes, God will answer our prayers by saying, no. That's why I don't have a Porsche. I have tried. No, I haven't. I actually have never prayed and asked God to give me a Porsche. Maybe it's why I don't have one. <laughs> Sometimes God says no. Sometimes God says no, not yet. Sometimes God says yes, I thought you'd never ask. And sometimes he says yes, and he has a whole lot more. And so faith means that when I pray about something... I give it to God and I leave it with Him, trusting that God is going to answer perfectly and lovingly whatever it is I bring to Him. So I'm asking for wisdom. Well, how's He going to give me wisdom? Well, the Bible is full of, of descriptions of how He's going to do it. He's going to give me wisdom through His Word, through the Scriptures. Let me give, give you a great illustration. And I may have given it before, but it's life. You've got to live with Raymond and his stories. When I arrived at seminary, I was looking for a, an apartment, and there was a guy who came up to me and said, you're looking for an apartment? I said, yes. He said, I've just vacated one. Here's, here's the address, and it turned out to be perfect. Easy, walking distance. We could afford it. It was great. So I said, thank you for doing that. What's your name? He said, my name is Gary Friesen. I didn't know that several years later, Gary Friesen would write a book called Decision Making and the Will of God. And Gary Friesen's book is just amazing. It's still in print, and it's an amazing book. Here's what he said. So when I need wisdom, how do I know how to respond to something? And his, point, his book points out, first of all, dead center. I go to God's Word, and I ask the question, what does God's Word say? Is it moral? Then I go to the next circle from God's Word, and I ask myself the question, is it wise? And if it's moral, 
And if it's wise, then the next question is, what do you want? And he uses a great illustration. Imagine some lucky girl falls in love with two guys. And they both propose to her. And she goes, God, which one should I marry? Well, she goes to the Word, and the Bible says you should marry the one who's a Christian. So if one of them is a believer in Christ and one of them is not, she should not marry the one who is not because her life will be absolutely miserable if she marries a man who does not believe in Christ. And her marriage will be greatly hampered by that. And so first thing the Word of God says, you need to marry somebody who's a believer. Okay? So a happy girl goes, uh-oh, both these guys are Christians. Like, oh, nuts. All right, so then you broaden it a bit, and you go, all right, what's the next circle? Is it moral? Yeah. Is it wise? Huh. Which of these two guys would be the best person for you to marry, based upon all of your values, based upon what you're looking for in life, based upon the fact that you have children someday? Which of these two men would be the wise choice for you? And so she examines the two guys. And lo and behold... They're both wise choices. Like, oh, come on, God. I'm looking to you to help me to decide who to marry. Is it moral? Is it wise? The next question is so scary. The next question is, what do you want? <laughs> and we go, no, 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 no. God, you're going to decide for me. And then he says, no. Which one do you want? What? Isn't there one perfect person I'm supposed to find in this world who's going to be my perfect husband? Well, you found two of them, so choose. Which one do you like better than the other one? Go ahead and do it. Make your choice. When you stood in front of your uh, clothing today, did you say, God, help me to decide what to wear? <laughs> Something inside your brain said, wear clothes. <laughs> Is it moral? Then the next step was, what kind of clothes should I wear? Well, wear clothes that are appropriate for going to church. Your bikini may be great on the beach, but please don't wear it to church. It's very distracting. Okay? And then, what do you want? That's, so what we do is we take many of our decisions, and we ask God to make the decision for us. And he says, I've given you my word. And if you open my word, I will give you the basic directions. But then he put his spirit inside of us, and his spirit works to guide us and direct us. So that there are times when the spirit will move us towards something that we may not have been ready to. Now, this empowering presence at the bottom and his spirit, look at both of those and understand this. That if God's spirit lives within you, he will speak to you. He will move you. He will direct you. And the more of God's word you have in your brain, the easier it is for him because he uses God's word in order to speak to you and to give you direction. But his spirit will be there. That's his job is to guide us towards maturity in Christ. Also the church. Go to members of the church and ask for wisdom. Say, I'm facing this right now. What do you think I should do? Please give me help. Please give me guidance. And then God's empowering presence through his word, through his people through his spirit is, is part of how God guides us to make those best choices. When I chose graduate school, I applied to two different graduate schools. One was up in Kansas, in, uh, uh, I was living in Kansas City. One was up in Deerfield, Illinois, uh, Trinity Evangelical uh, School, and I applied to go and do my graduate school there. And then I applied to a school down in Dallas, Dallas Theological Seminary. 
And I applied and I said, okay, Lord, whichever one you want me to go to, let me get accepted. And I was accepted by both. It's like, oh, are you kidding, God? You're supposed to make these decisions for me. Which one am I supposed to go to? I tell you what, I wrestled with this question for weeks. And the day we left Kansas City, my wife and I met some friends at a Denny's on I-35. I-35 goes south to Dallas and north toward Chicago. And we met them at Denny's on I-35. And at breakfast they said, so, which seminary are you going to go to? And I said, I don't know. They said, are you nuts? We had our U-Haul behind our car. We were having breakfast and we're about to hit I-35 and either go north or south. And they said, which way? Which seminary are you going to go to? I said, I don't know. Even after breakfast, when we said goodbye to them, my wife and I sat near the entrance ramps, and we still didn't know. Now, my, my wife had a sister who lived up in Chicago, so we could go stay with her initially and, you know, until we got settled. But my wife had a sister in, Chicago, in Dallas as well. And I was like, oh, are you kidding? Which way do we go? And so we sat there at the entrance of I-35, and prayed about it. And as we prayed about it, the Spirit of God said to me, which one are you most scared of? I said, Dallas. He said, go to Dallas. Isn't that interesting? For me, it came down to the fact that I was terrified of going to Dallas Theological Seminary. I lived for four years of terror while I was there, by the way. Constant fear that I was going to flame out at that school. But for me, I do believe that God the Spirit just said to me, okay, let me help you. Which one are you scared of? Dallas. Go to Dallas. And to this day, I am so thankful that we turned south. And so when we face these questions and these, these issues in life, understand that God is there to guide and to direct us. The one thing he will never direct us to do is to do something sinful, to do something harmful, to do something wrong. And that's why we have to have the word as the first place we go, to look for guidance from God. But understand this, what James is wanting us to know is what Paul also says. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been according to, called according to his purpose. In all things, everything that comes along in our life, if we love God and we follow after him, God will make all things work together for us, no matter how awful they were, no matter how bad the experience was, or how good. He will make all those things work together for the good of those who love him. The prophet Habakkuk was an amazing man. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of a country that had been decimated and destroyed by their enemies, he then heard the coming of the Lord. And he saw in the future that God was going to come, that God was going to come and rescue the nation. And because of this, he wrote these beautiful words. Though the fig tree does not blossom, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. And amazing? That's what their country was like. Completely wiped out and decimated. And he said, though there's no prosperity here, though there's nothing here, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Why? The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. 
He enables me to go on the heights. The deer that he has in his mind is, is one of those, those animals that can climb up rocks, uh, you know, the kind of uh, goats you find that can climb up mountains and stuff. That's what is in his mind. It says, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer. He enables me to go on the heights. That's the spirit that God wants to implant inside of us that we can have if we want it, if we choose it. One of my professors, Dr. Bruce Walkie, incredible man. When this man prayed, <laughs> you wanted to take notes. It was like another psalm. He, he could fluently lead, read Hebrew, fluently read Greek. He was a most amazingly godly man. And he told a story once that has just stuck with me. He and his son had, were, were, were um, keeping moths. You know how you have the little chrysalis or the whatever you call it, and then the, eventually they turn into moths. And he used an illustration there that stuck with me. He said, on one occasion while they were working with the moths, he noticed that one moth was battling to get out of its cocoon. And it was battling and battling and battling until finally he and his son got frustrated. So he went and got a small pair of scissors and he snipped away at the edges of the cocoon so that the moth could emerge. And he said, you know what's interesting? Is that all the other moths could fly. That one could never fly. And so he researched it, and he found out that it's in the process of getting out of the cocoon that the moth builds the mass muscles and the strength it needs to be able to fly. I'm going to compliment you. You're not a moth. You're a butterfly. And there are going to be times when God is going to take us through tough times, and those tough times are not to hurt us. Those tough times are to strengthen us and build us. And God sometimes waits. We want him to stop the trouble, and he waits. And we want him to give us release from it, and he doesn't. He does sometimes, but he doesn't. There are times when he stays there with us, and what he's doing is he's putting us through that tough time because he's building our endurance so that we can fly. And that's why James says, when you're going through tough times, trust God. He's in charge, and wait upon him. Let's pray together.